Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road Getting from then to here It's been a long time But my time is finally here I can feel the change in the way right now Nothing's in my way Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Jess Armine coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. And tonight we have a special guest who epitomizes our theme song, someone who has faith of the heart and the strength of the soul to be able to work her way through hidden illnesses and survive and flourish. Uh, let's, um, before I introduce our guest... I want to remind everybody that the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine is the takes genetics and integrative medicine to a new level. We find answers through genetics and integrative medicine when other people cannot find answers. And uh, we are training other practitioners and we're going to be training lay people in the paradigm that we utilize and that's coming up real soon. So stay tuned. Tonight, I have the honor of interviewing Cheryl Savage, who lives in Portland with her husband and 14-year-old twins. She's going to discuss her journey of hidden illnesses. You know, we all talk about chronic illnesses. We all talk about um, different problems that we have and, and who didn't diagnose what, but there's a whole mess of hidden illnesses. There are a whole mess of people with, you know, problems that no one's been able to diagnose or they kind of ignore it or the doctors, be they traditional or uh, alternative, uh, just miss the mark. And uh, some of those hidden illnesses include things like autoimmune disease, uh, auto, uh, autoimmune dysregulation, dysautonomia, Lyme disease and its co-infections, Bartonella, Babesia, fibromyalgia, Sjogren's syndrome, adrenal insufficiency, immunoglobulin deficiency, celiac d- disease. Graves' disease, Hashimoto's, and of course, the dreaded MTHFR defects. I always kid about that because everyone concentrates so heavily on MTHFR where it's really only one enzyme in a sea of enzymes that have to be considered. <clears throat> Cheryl is an incredibly special individual who has defeated numerous hidden illnesses, and I'd like to take this time to thank her for being here. And um, I think she's here. Yes, she is. Hold on. She's listening. Cheryl, are um, you there? Yes, I'm here. And I'd like to welcome you to our show. 
And at this time, I think I'm going to turn it straight over to you to tell your story. Everybody in the chat room, if you have questions, please go ahead and, uh, and type them out, and I will ask Cheryl. Uh, as everyone knows, if you'd like to call in with a question, the call-in number is 646-595-2277. That's 646-595-2277 if you'd like to ask our guest a question. Cheryl, the... Yes, and I wanted to yours. thank you for having me on the show and for letting We're me honored. tell my story. Anyway, I wanted to start out in infancy because I was really quite a sick infant. And it seems when I look at the record that I had symptoms early on with grains and dairy. And anyway, at the age of four months, I ended up in the ER and I was having pedimol seizures or like small seizures. And my right side of my body was affected. I was, like I said, I was an infant. And they couldn't tell what was going on. You know, they did analysis. They actually were kind of accusatory of my parents. And eventually, as I look at my own records, it says they diagnosed me with toxic convulsions, enterocolitis, and hematuria. And so I was, I hear oxygen tented. My parents thought that I was going to die. And um, so the twitching stopped eventually and they discharged me. They really weren't able to find anything. And that really kind of begins my journey. And I think it, it says a lot because if you look in my records, continuously, I'm on wheat, I'm on dairy, I'm on oats. And I'm going back and forth from dairy to wheat trying to get the back and forth diarrhea and constipation to stop. And this is a, the beginning of a long-term problem throughout my life, you know, this diarrhea with wheat and grains and, and with uh, dairy constipation, you know, cottage cheese caused that. So that's how the docs chose to approach that instead of taking me out, maybe taking me off some of those foods. And so... You know, throughout my teen years, I develop what I call like pseudo-gallbladder issues. So I get pain all the way around my stomach, and I get stabbing, shooting pain. It felt like gallbladder disease actually does feel all the way to the spine. It hurt me. And interestingly enough, the milk actually helped me deal with that symptom. So, um, you know, I got like rashes on my face when I would eat oat and, and grain. We couldn't really figure out which one it was, though, which grain, my mom and I. And I was a stubborn teenager, so I just kind of went, I'm going to eat this, and my body will get used to it, you know, because nobody had any true answers anyway. So I developed depression in my teens and anxiety, and, and um in my late teens, I had a car accident in 1989, and I'm bringing this up for a reason, so it's, it's related. In 1991, again in 1992, and then finally in 1993. And those were all rear-end collisions, the last one being high impact at 45 miles per hour in Texas. <laughs> and so Everything I'm in a backtrack. Yes, yes, it's always big. And so those things in their context made me think that's why I'm having pain and that's why I bring them up. But I still want to backtrack because after 1992, I was really never the same. And it's something that I sort of missed out on. I, I brought it up as a story to people, but I never knew what it was. 
So in mid-1992, I chose to stay in Bakersfield. I was 21, and I wanted to kind of, you know, get out there and live on my own. So I got an apartment. It was my first apartment. And I was living there taking antidepressants because that's how they were treating my pain and, and my different symptoms of depression. I mean, that makes sense to, to approach depression that way. And so um, the pharmacy inadvertently exchanged my medication for a heart medicine. And unfortunately, at the same oh time as my. that, yes, so as, at the same time as this other thing happened, that's what was going on. Right prior to that, my dog got very ill. And I rushed her to an ER, and she was, they checked her for everything. And they said, is there anything she could have gotten into? Is there any bacteria? And I said, I don't know. I mean, the sky's the limit at where she was staying because I picked her up. And, but I didn't put together, I put her on my lap. And anyway, she came home. She did okay. But days later, maybe a week later, my friend across the way said to me, you, know, you have a, a gigantic bite on you, and you need to go to the doctor. And I said, I, that's nothing. I mean, I, and it was big. It was probably about four inches across and it was red and it had a small center area that was kind of a little open, if I remember. And I said, it doesn't even hurt. I mean, if it was, cause he said it was brown recluse. And I said, you know, if it was brown recluse, like I would know, cause that would hurt. And I, you know, it's not a black widow cause it would be necrotic. You know, the no, tissue black, black widow you'd know about. <laughs> I'd know it. So very, I just, very, you can see very. why I discounted it. So, at, and, in, and brown recluse really wasn't down there, from what I understand, and isn't really a big spider down there. So, I, anyway, I just totally ignored it, but I started getting palpitations, and I started not being able to sleep, and and so, you know, I called my doctor, and before I called my doctor, though, I went in to go get my, my refill, and this is when I found out that they said, oh, those aren't antidepressants, those are heart meds, and I said, no, 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 these are my antidepressants, I've been taking these for a while, and um, they said, they're not. We're sorry. We made a mistake. And so I, that sidetracked me from, you know, what I told the doctor. I didn't tell him about the bite that stayed there for three months after I saw it. I told him about the symptoms of palpitations, and he checked my heart, and he said, you have a non-deadly arrhythmia, and you're going to need to keep an eye on it. And so I quietly settled I'll just put it that way with that pharmacy because they were unwilling to oh. just say they were sorry. That's all I wanted was for them to say they were sorry. And I, I do mean that. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't do that. And so I never was the same. I had, I had to go home. I had to move home to the, you know, the northern Pacific part of the northwest, part of the northwest here. Uh, I moved to Washington, Vancouver, Washington in 1992. My mom came down and got me and I moved up here and I started to have severe insomnia. Like I never went to bed before 1.30. I had itching. I had very, very bad muscular pain. And it wasn't as bad as it would become. It was more like spinal muscular pain. Like it was in the mid-spine. And my doctor told me, my chiropractor, that I had adrenal issues. That she could tell because of the particular part of the spine that she was adjusting. So I don't know. You know, it probably means more to you than it does to me even now. But... So, you know, I had hair analysis, blood, urine analysis for metal toxicity in the 1990s at that time, and they found aluminum toxicity, and they found lead toxicity. And so I couldn't afford the treatment, which was $400 a pop for chelation. And furthermore, I I felt it was rather dangerous. And there's some pretty good, I thought maybe I'd get overloaded. So I didn't have much of a choice. 
I just kind of kept going. I went to school. I went to university. And one of the things I didn't point out is that in Bakersfield, I had been exposed to what they call valley fever. I'd been exposed to Coxsackie virus. And I had had some strange symptoms down there. One time I had all these kind of purple look in my feet. And that went on for months. And I had a lung infection. And I'm bringing that up because I had viral exposure to multiple herpes um, viruses, and those ended up showing in my blood. And so I was in school, and here I was with this, you know, 1993 collision, a bunch of viral exposure, and then on top of it, my friend died, a very good friend of mine. And I say died, it was actually a very traumatic event that I'm going to skip or I'll get upset. So, you know, in the middle of all this, I'm trying to go to school, and I'm vomiting in class, and I'm vomiting constantly. And I actually don't eat prior to 2 o'clock any day because the first Hours of my day are spent vomiting prior to prepping to go to school. And I go to school even with the vomiting, and I'm running in and out of class doing so because that's how sick I was. And the nurse told me, you have the flu, and I thought, or cold. And I, thought, I took echinacea, and I thought, this just keeps going. Like, it doesn't ever stop. I can't wake up. My muscle pain changed. It was all the time. It, was, it felt like I was, I was 80 years old. And that's what I used to say. And so in 1995, I withdrew from school, and I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And I really felt that it was a devastating illness because they told me there was no known cause and there was no known cure. And so I really just had no hope at that time. You know, I just really didn't care anymore because they, the way they presented it was that way. I tried injections. I tried massage. I tried a movement technique called the Traeger approach. Interesting, but it didn't stop my pain. And I did eventually. I met my current, my husband, Barry, and um, we got together in 1996. And it was late in 1996, and I went into remission almost immediately. And I went into remission so much so that I would ask if I even had fibromyalgia. I mean, I, I'd forgotten. And then I started to go through fertility procedures in 1998. And still I was doing pretty well. But they told me at that time you might have autoimmune disease. They just didn't say all tests came back negative. So all the tests came back negative, but I was having trouble getting pregnant, and he had issues, so we had to use fertility procedures. And I, I remember getting this endometrioma. I had surgeries during my fertility procedures. I had a couple surgeries and for endometriosis and for swelling in the ovaries I had. My ovaries were filled with fluid from the fertility drugs. And so they went in and drained them and then did endometriosis surgery by laser. And I'd never allow that again because it causes more scar tissue. And so, you know, I, I eventually I had this endometrioma on my cervix. And I remember my doctor, my fertility doctor, saying, wow, you have something on your cervix. And I was like, what is it? And he was like, oh, I'm, I don't know, but I'm not concerned. And I was going, okay. Well, he doesn't and have to. It's not him. I mean, the cervix is where, you, if you're not getting pregnant and there's something on your cervix, you want to find out what that something is. I'm just, I'm telling oh, yeah. people who are listening. And he never did that. And he's a known expert in this area and I'll stay out of that. But anyway, so, you know, I kind of, despite that, though, my, I got pregnant in 1999. I took the bull by the horns and I, I said, I want this type of treatment. I'm not going to go through any more IVF. I've had enough. And I got pregnant. I did miscarry through my fertility procedures, but I managed to get pregnant with twins. That's the twins that you talked about in my introduction. And 
So right late in pregnancy, I started having trouble. I couldn't eat. During my pregnancy, I would vomit constantly, and I developed a movement issue. So I was moving, and they were giving me Phenergan, which causes movement too, so I couldn't tell what was causing what. But I was either moving and not vomiting or not moving, not taking the medication and vomiting nonstop. And so I really felt like I had to make a choice, and so I chose in between, which was to take the medicine sometimes. And I thought, if this movement keeps going, I'm going to go crazy. Because it wasn't just restless leg syndrome, which people hear about. It was all through my body. This, yes, I controlled it, but it's what I call restless body syndrome. Mm-hmm. So at my pregnancy, my kids were born. My son, they were 38 weeks. My son was 3 pounds, 5 ounces. That was a shock. The placenta had something happened. My daughter was five pounds, five ounces. He was rushed to the NICU. I didn't see him for 17 hours. Just give me one second. So that was very unexpected for us because they were to turn. Okay, just relax. And so... Take a breath. Very, it's important. What you're saying is important. People are going to benefit from your story. Just, just breathe and relax, okay? There you go. I'm doing good. So, you know, you have to focus, though, I mean, when your kids are sick. And so after my pregnancy, my doctor came in, and she said, I, there's something weird's going with you, you know. You have what we call preeclampsia, but you're having it after your pregnancy. And she said, that's unusual. So she kept me in the hospital, but she never looked. She just waited till the blood pressure came down. And she waited till the swelling kind of came down. And she discharged me. And I stayed in the hospital room there because my son was admitted for three weeks. And so we stayed there in the hospital. My, my daughter and son were both in the NICU. She took care of him quite well, and my daughter. And uh, I think that really helped his recovery. And so, but, you know, that after that, I started having a lot of anxiety and sleep issues, and I started taking clonazepam because I just couldn't be able to. That's a benzodiazepine drug for people that don't know. And so, you know, and I, you know, I did say it was C-section, my delivery. So I couldn't get up when my son was taken away. That's why I didn't see him for so long. But in the meantime of this, they missed rectal prolapse and gallstones. And so while my children were going through all this, I was having gallstones, and my gallbladder was packed with stones, actually. And I had mm-hmm. rectal prolapse, which you know is a very serious condition, and they missed that. Oh, yeah. And so when my children were two months old, about five weeks after I got them home, I started having really terrible, terrible symptoms about three weeks after I got them home, actually. And I told my doctor, and she said, just take antacid. And I said, we have a history of gallbladder disease in my family. And she didn't listen. And my sister finally said, you need to go in and get an ultrasound. And I called my doctor and my GYN, and she said, I'll, I'll prescribe the ultrasound. And my sister was right. Sure enough, packed with uh, stones. And so mm-hmm. I went to a surgeon who scheduled it and postponed my surgery. And so luckily for me, a doctor that I didn't like very well, but he was quite keen, he caught on to me having an attack. And he said, are you having, a, are you having pain right now? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, the common duct can get stuck, blocked. And if that's it right. does, that's dangerous. And I said, well, I'm not in that bad a pain. And he said, you need an ambulance? And he called his co- a colleague and he told his colleague off in no uncertain terms. He said, I'm sending your patient to the ER. She's sick. 
and I think she's blocked. And I went to the ER. I drove myself there. And when I got there, they told me that every stone had passed except for one. And guess what happened to that last one? It got stuck. Got stuck. Okay, so that led to a two-hour surgery. And instead of the 30-minute surgery, it would have been my liver, my, my gallbladder was the size of my liver. It was thick-skinned, and it was removed in pieces through my navel. And then they sent me home, and I had to take care of twins. You know, I mean, it just, I moved on. I mean, and the thing was, is I was kind of, you know, I just needed to keep going because I had these little babies. And then at seven, in, um, like uh, the seven, let's see, it was about two months later. So these guys were four months, four months old. In July of 2000, my doctor told me I had rectal prolapse and that that had been missed, and I had to have colorectal surgery, I'm sorry. And they repaired that, and that was quite painful in an eight-week recovery. And so I was still just keeping on going. And finally, in October of 2000, I was just in terrible pain. And, I mean, it was not like the kind of pain I'd had even before, which was bad. This was, like, insane. Every part of my body felt like it was burning, you know, where fibromyalgia tender points are. And the joints just killed, and I, I just didn't know what to do. And so I went to a pain clinic. And they put me on methadone and tried all these different things, which I, I was on OxyContin for two days and I quit. It was, I'm not allergic to pain drugs. And so I just vomited with all that stuff. And so they got mad at me and they discharged me from care because I ended up in the ER when, you know, I couldn't get treatment that worked through them. And so after that, I went out they get all, mad at you when they don't, yes, when the, yes, when the treatment's the not working. My life. I mean, I can't tell you, I can tell you more doctors that fired me when they acted wrong, then, then doctors are the reverse. And doctors got frustrated with me. So I quit all pain medications, and I went into an alternative uh, provider. She was a chiropractor here, and she did some clinical trials using microcurrent, and I was in those clinical trials. And she got me into remission. She did get me into remission for months and until late 2001, early 2002, and it stopped working. And I even bought the machine for $3,000. It still didn't work. And that's mm. when I started sweating and really moving in this rocking fashion. I looked psychotic. I mean, I, some people would say I looked psychotic. So then I went to another doctor, and I tried to get trigger point injections. But he used cortisone, so I wasn't a big fan of that. That was a big argument between us. And so, you know, when you argue with your doctor, they're not going to like that. And so... And then I remember him doing these injections on me, and he sprayed. You know what cold spray is? If you've ever worked with yeah. cold spray, it's like spray and stretch. Mm -hmm. He sprayed that on my body, and my body always broke out in sweat. And when he sprayed that, it broke out in sweat, and I had chills. To describe the kind of chills that I had, which are characteristic of Babesia or malaria, tick-borne malaria, which is what I believe I had, was struggling mm -hmm. with, is hard for me to describe. It's awful. Okay, you feel like you're going to freeze to death. And he sprayed me, and then I cried, and he said, look, you need to go get it together, and you need to go to a psychiatrist. And here's this guy's name, and this guy did ECT, and that's the only treatment he did. And he said, if you don't do this, if you don't go to this guy, I'm not going to treat you. That's it. And I said, I'm not doing that. You can't force me into a psychiatrist like this. You know, it's just not a way uh, to treat yeah, a patient. I think everybody out there who's uh, suffered from a chronic illness that <clears throat> has been hid hidden, which is exactly what we're talking about, has run into a situation when their doctor 
you know, says it must be in your head. They never seem to say it's something I've missed. Yeah, yeah, and he he was saying I had pain, but I basically had mental defect too or mental disease. So what do I do though after telling him off? I break down and I actually go to the doctor because I feel like maybe this guy's right, right? I mean, I'm not hearing a lot of people disagreeing. I'm not hearing a lot of doctors saying I got something they can help me with. So I went ahead and I did ECT. I did ECT 11 times, I believe. But on that 11th time, I was sitting there and I was crying after ECT. And the nurse came up to me and she said, Sherry, honey, I know this is hard. Do you have depression? I said, no, no, you don't know. You don't know. Because here's what I know. I don't belong here. I, my issue is not depression. And these people, this is a farm, and you're bringing us in one at a time for your farming procedures. And I won't be back. And I did not go back. And so I struggled continuously with the sweating and chills and rocking. Those are the worst of the symptoms initially. And that's why I bring them up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had kind of like palpitations, too. That continued to be an issue, nervousness. And finally, one of my friends told me, you better go to Mayo Clinic or something, because this sweating is not normal. And I will tell you, I had doctors ask me if maybe I had HIV. I had them do so right in front of a whole waiting room when they weren't even my physician. And I had tested negative already. Almost anyone's had an HIV test in their 20s, and I had had three, all negative. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I went to Mayo mid-2003, and they told me, well, maybe you have lymphatic cancer. So they gave me a CT dye, and they checked my lymph system, and it was negative. Unfortunately, because they did that, they couldn't do the thyroid uptake and scan test that would have told them more information about my thyroid, although they didn't really just need to do that. They could have looked for autoantibodies fully, which they didn't do. And they found to suppress TSH. So I had to wait. Because of them, at the end of it, they told me, we think it's your fibromyalgia. That's what we're really, or your depression. And I said, you've you got to be kidding me. That's what you came up with after all this? So I went home, and I had to go off iodine. I had to go on iodine-free diet, you know, like basically everything prepped, no added iodine into the diet. And then they did an uptake and scan, and I don't, I'm not very familiar with that except for they give you nuclear medicine and they measure it. And mine was 54%, my uptake scan, which is very high. And I was told that I had a diffuse goiter, characteristic of Graves' disease. That was told to me on a Friday, and the doctor told me we should obliterate your thyroid gland. This was the radiologist, by the way, not my doctor. And he counseled me on Friday to get me in on Monday. My, other, my doctor, who was 96, was madder than hell. <laughs> he was. And he said he was not supposed to counsel you. But, see, I was in misery. And the <clears throat> radiologist had told me that he promised me. He said, you will get well. Everything will change. Your personality will change. Your sweating will stop. This will stop. That will stop. Everything will be fine. And but he said, you know this disease, and it will keep coming back. And I remember when I took that pill, he came in and lead, in his lead container, and his radioiodine pill, and I took it and I swallowed it. And right after I swallowed it, I thought I should throw this up. And that's what I wish I'd done. I don't know if it would have done any good, but that's how I felt. Anyway, it was years of anguish after that. It didn't stop. The sweating increased. The movement increased. The palpitations, I would wake up. It felt like somebody was, you know, scaring me awake. I'd startle awake in the morning with palpitations. It would go on for two hours. My heart rate was in excess of 100 always. That was my resting pulse. 
and it would it was up above that. They did a halter monitor test in 2007, 2008. For two hours out of the night, my pulse was 120. For about calculated several minutes, it was over 174, and I was having premature ventricular contractions. Two cardiologists signed off on that, saying that was fine. In 2009, I met really a worse fate than I had thought could be possible with everything going on. Because believe it or not, I still was happy when I was well. It's just I couldn't throw stuff. I'd get hot and start sweating. I wore ice packs, and yes, I do mean during the winter to control my temperature because I sweat all the time, and that stopped the sweating. I know that sounds weird, but it did. And I, But I took a fall on the stairs on my kid's birthday in 2000, and I fell one step, and it really injured me. And then I prayed after that. You know when H1N was, was really big in the news? My daughter mm-hmm. came home, and she was sick, and she vomited in her sleep. And I cleaned that up, and then I got really sick with this, like, a lung thing. And my lungs filled with fluid. And there was, like, decreased breath sounds. My doc had told me that I was seeing at the time. And she just didn't do anything about it. And I could not breathe, and I was afraid of exposing other people. So I just stayed home and suffered through it. And I think that might have been H1N1, and, but I don't know, and, I'll, I, and I will never know. And so um, in about May or June, I had started to recover. One thing I forgot to mention is that late in 2008, we had a bad summer or winter here, and my kids and I all got another strange blood looking like bruising in our feet, like I'd had in the 1990s when I talked about earlier. And... So it was like this blood, look at blood in the feet, and uh, like blood that needed to be reabsorbed, you know, and the doctor said it was staphylococcus again, same, same, same diagnosis as in the 90s. And she gave us clindamycin for over six months to take topically on our skin, to put topically on our skin, and it did no good. And this foot thing was going on at the same time. It just kept going into the spring, and I didn't know what it was. And so, and it itched, and it it was weird. I think it was Bardinella now. But so, um, which is a co-infection of Lyme. And so by June, I was starting to feel better, but I was in the store. I was getting ready for a garden, and I my foot pain, I remember exactly where I was. My foot feet started killing, and it wasn't normal foot pain. It was really something else, this foot pain. I mean, I just, I had to get home, and I didn't think I was going to be walking the next and the next moment or next next day even, it was that strong. And I got out my microcurrent machine and I treated and treated and treated. And I tried everything that I could do in my power to stop this pain. I went through a lot of injections. I went through podiatrists and none of them did any good. I went to a PT in the late fall and they started doing all the normal stuff PTs do. And by winter... I still had, I had upper body symptoms too. Like my hands were affected. Everything was affected. This wasn't just my feet. So it was interesting that that's how they treated it. And I went in, let's see. So like I went somewhere, I remember in December and I was like, wow, I'm starting to regain hand function to be able to write. And because that's how bad it was. I couldn't write or anything in, in like late in the year. And so I started to go into remission, but I was still in pain. And I thought, oh, wow, the PT is working. Like, I gave him credit. And so this went on, and then I kept being better. And then, But I still had some pain, you know. It was like a remission. And then in spring of 2010, it started right back up again. 
just like 2009, it was exact repeat, and I do mean it. It was hell. It started out, and I started getting injections again. Injections in the spine, injections in the hips, injections, you name it, I had injections. And, and those were cortisone injections. And so I, then I started seeing chiropractor again. And, you know, it's just, uh, it really was a hor- it took my whole spring and summer, though. I, nothing worked. I mean, it just seemed like in 2010 that nothing that I tried during the spring and summer worked, you know. I was seeing the chiropractor, but that didn't help. And he was frustrated with me. He was. He did mention about wheat. A lot of people mentioned about wheat. I didn't listen because they didn't explain it. But I'm going to tell you, wheat is a big no-no for most people with autoimmune. And I wish I had known sooner. I would have outed it a long time ago. The best thing I ever did. But so, you know, I thought that usually that meant they were blaming me because that came in the context of you need to eliminate wheat gluten. It was kind of this sassy, you know, angry tone that they'd have when they'd get frustrated with me. So, again, late in October, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Graston approach, but I decided to try that. The Graston mm-hmm. approach is an approach where you use these metal instruments and you do fascial work for guys, people out there that listen that don't know. And I'm sure you know what it is because you're a chiropractor. You almost have to know what Graston is. Anyway, so I went in. This person took me on as a patient, and she put me on D-ribose, and I started feeling better. And again, though, it was notice from the timing. It was October. And so, again, I started to notice this phenomenal recovery, and I thought, but this time this year, I had knee issues and stuff, bad knee issues. Like, my knee went out. And so I... I really had problems more so this year. But I did get to go out, like, during the fall. Again, I started to be able to walk again because I couldn't walk all summer. I was in my house stuck. I was housebound, bedbound, completely stuck in 2009. If I'm I'm hearing you correctly, uh, uh, the D-ribose helped plus the... uh, Yes, it did. The D-ribose, it seemed to. Well, I'm going to explain to you what I mean by seemed to. The D-ribose really made me different, so I know I did something. But what happened is, the what happened the year before, remember how I, in October, I started to see a remission, like happened late, late in the year, and it started to happen toward late fall. That same thing happened mm-hmm. in 2010, almost the same way. And so by spring of 2011, every single symptom came back. And even, even in remission, I had to sleep on my back with pillows under my knees and my knees killed. I just, I didn't pay any attention to it because that's what you do when you're in chronic pain. And so everything came back and then she, she said, I don't want to see you anymore as a patient. The person doing Graston, she just quit seeing me that day. I mean, she had wanted nothing to do with me. And my primary current physician told me the problem isn't just your fibromyalgia, the problem is you. Up until that point, they were fine with me until I quit responding to treatment. Nothing worked. Deribos didn't work because actually what was happening is a waxing and waning of my illness. And so yeah. what would happen is in the, in the winter, it would stop because of the cold or something. I don't know. And that's weird for fibromyalgia, by the way. Usually that's when things get bad. And then in the spring, it would just kick up with the vengeance. Like it was just mad at me almost. My body was fighting me. And I had given up. I really had. And I, I just got so worried. I, I remember sitting there, and I'm going to kind of skip ahead as fast as I can in this one because I want to talk about really the treatment was just a repeat, you know, injections, that type of thing, the pain well, medication. What, uh, pain if passing. I may, if I may, what, what 
diagnoses were you? What diagnoses were you? This given? is when it happened. This is during that time. They just kept hanging in there with thyroid disease and fibromyalgia. I mean, that's that's what they did. But in 2011, in like I was all through the summer, I was in bad shape, and my eyes were like really dry. Like they had no lubrication on them at all. And I would scream at night. And I I will share with you and the audience that I was considering end of life decisions because I had couldn't lift my head. I couldn't use utensils. I couldn't walk. I couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom if I needed to. And I just didn't see where life was worth it. And so I, but at the last moment, this person that I met mentioned this Chinese doctor. And another woman told me, she told me about a, an eye doctor. So I went to this eye doctor and he told me, I'm not even going to examine you beyond this because you have Sjogren's disease. And so I said, there you go. Because the reason I said that is because I had told a doctor about Sjogren's and I was Sjogren's negative, which I tested negative in the blood. And so he didn't believe me. And I said, I still think it could be a Sjogren's seronegative. And he said, no, it's not. And so this is this doctor. He looked and he said, you have classic Sjogren's. He was an expert in this area in Sjogren's, even though he was an eye doctor. And actually an eye doctor discovered Sjogren's. So that's kind of fitting anyway. And then the, the classical Chinese physician told me I had Borrelia, you know, or been exposed to Lyme. He told me I had Coxsackie and a number of other, you know, Chinese physicians are kind of different anyway. So he gave me all these, you know, he told me your adrenal glands are not functioning, your pituitary gland not functioning. He said your thyroid obviously is not doing well because you don't have one. And so it's not, your, your hormone system is out of whack. And let me see, what other, I, at that time they diagnosed me with IgA deficiency, immunoglobulin A deficiency, which causes you to be more susceptible to mucous membranes when you have that. And um, I'm trying to think what else they get. Celiac by genetics, I tested positive. And mm -hmm. then, um, then they diagnosed secondary adrenal insufficiency. I had zero ACTH signal, which is a major signal that comes down, you know, you know it's a major neurotransmitter. That just was not even present in my adrenal studies. And so at that time, I was very depressed, and I decided I was going to go off of my pain medication and anything that caused my eyes to dry out. I started taking essential fatty acids, and I started getting off those medicines because I wanted to take LDN. Somebody had told me about LDN. I had one of my, a naturopath had told me about LDN, and we had found, run into it, my husband and I, on researching because he would research weekly when I would talk about end-of-life decisions. He was trying anything, and so he came across that. And I thought to myself, well, I wanted to do two things, you know. I wanted to continue the Chinese medicine, and he got me in there. My, my husband kind of convinced me to hang around, and so I did that with herbs. I did a big elimination diet, and then I wanted to get on LDN. And the thing was, I was on 45 milligrams of hydrocodone, and you can't take hydrocodone and, and LDN together at those, even at low doses, ultra low maybe, right. but it didn't work for They're me. Synergized. And so... I just started, I went on medical marijuana and I detoxed myself off of opiates. It took me until from November of 2000, I'm trying to calculate the amount of time that I've been on this now. It took me from like, it took me one year, one year and two months to detox off of opiates. And then in February of 2013, I went on LDN. And I, I went on ultra low dose first because I, was trying to, you know, get off their last few milligrams, and then I just decided to 
stop that and go all the way off of it, and then I went on low dose. And I was a little different than other people. I had to start really low. I had to start at 0.1 milligrams, and I was kind of sensitive, I thought. And so the first night I was taking it with opiates, so it's really hard for me to say, but I actually don't think my symptoms... I mean, I did wake, I startled kind of awake the first night, you know, and I was like, okay, this is not, maybe it's just not going to work for me. And that's why I didn't take the opiates with it is because I was worried that that was having an effect. It's hard to tell what's going on if you're on opiates. But after that, I tried taking it at 9 because everyone told me to take it between like 9 and 11. And so I was going to bed at 4.30 in the morning, so that was kind of early for me to take it. And so I had a little bit of like waking, like not sleeping properly, you know, really basic, but I don't necessarily associate that with LDN. I mean, I had, I had bad insomnia and it could be that my body was adjusting because of my illnesses. And so I just slowly, what I decided was a friend of mine, Renee, who runs a great group online called .e, she um, got endorphins, I, you might know the group. She told me to take it when my head hit the pillow. And so I took it at 4.30 in the morning. And I never had any other problems after that with sleep. So and, what, did the, and, what did the LDN do for you? Well, at first, you know, and I wasn't like, you know, your story. Over, really overall, overall, overall. Overall, you, you, it's been great. I mean, because, at, like, I noticed most of the stuff. The first stuff I noticed was at, like, three months, you know. I didn't notice it right away. I noticed, like, I was you know, able to, you know, I had all the sweating and the sweating kind of stopped. The chills, those things, I wasn't, I, I could never wear a coat in the right time of year. Like in winter, I couldn't wear it very much. In the summer, I was wearing winter coats when I was biking in 80 degree weather. So, um, I'm trying to just so, keep myself so the, oriented. So, for what I'm, so from what I'm hearing, uh, what turns you, what turns you around, and and I think you should let people know, um, uh, you know, what all this stuff did for you, because between the Chinese medicine and yes. you caring for your body as opposed to caring for the diagnoses and yes. the LDN. You were wheelchair-bound, weren't you? Yes, I was wheelchair-bound. And that's the thing is that my recovery is a little different than some people on LDN because after I had Chinese herbs and dietary changes, which, you know, all treatments require personal responsibility. So I really followed my Chinese physician's orders. When he said not to have dairy, I didn't have dairy. When he said not to have wheat, I didn't have wheat. When he said not to have pepper and those things, I stopped eating a lot of that stuff. And so that, I was on a bike riding three months after my Chinese medicine. Like, forget LDN. This was even just my Chinese medicine. I was still in the wheelchair, though. So it seems to me that uh, what the Chinese medicine did was, and it doesn't sound like the Chinese practitioner got frustrated with you. Maybe got frustrated with your condition, but but started treating, I don't doubt it. You know, mm-hmm. but the end result was that if you treat the the person the person rather than treating these alleged the diagnoses, diagnoses, then people start getting better because you, the practitioner who looked at you from the inside out said, "Hey, your adrenals aren't working. You need essential fatty acids. You know, these are all things that Lyme and other things did to you, but let's treat that." 
Uh, to interrupt, we have been we have somebody who's been waiting on hold to ask you a question. Good. So I'd like to uh, invite them to talk. Uh, the person from the five six one area code. Are you still there? Yes, I'm here. And just, would you like to ask you? Yes, Go I, ahead. I too suffer, I suffer from MCS too. But I don't know if you've heard a targeted individual, but I'm a targeted individual, and and how they started targeting me. You know, I was I'm a human rights activist out there protesting over toxic mold. This that I know you don't have much time, but I'm in danger because I'm all, I was also living on the plus housing. And uh, working, with, and I was arrested at the Clinton fundraiser. It was all in the news, everything, but nobody ever helped me, and nobody's helping me with this. You know, uh, I ended up in the hospital, Broward General Hospital, with asthma attack. They put this this nurse. She wasn't really a nurse. She was the manager of a building where I went to get an ap- apartment. She started injecting. The doctor disappeared. I was in there for a bad asthma attack. My doctor disappeared. And this girl, I didn't recognize her at first. She showed up as a nurse, and she was injecting me in my fallopian tube with what she called the blood center. But then, as, it, it as I remembered, be- as I remembered, dear, you you called in before, um, a while back, yeah. And I had asked you, uh, go ahead and call my private office and schedule a time for us to chat because. This, uh, what you're talking okay. about is outside the scope of this particular discussion, but I would be happy okay. to chatter with you. So give us a call, Please. okay? What is no your problem. Number? What is the number? What's the it's number? Just go to, my, go to my website, which is drjessarmine.com. It's, it'll be right there. Dr. Jess, okay. is that on here? Yes, thank mm, you. Yes, you're most welcome, dear. Okay. I'm still here. All right, so... Um, so uh, the the uh, uh, and everybody who's out there who's listening, uh, this would be the time. It's about a quarter of nine. We have about uh, 14 minutes left. Uh, if anybody has questions, I'd like to call in at 646-595-2277. Or if you're on the uh, chat room, I'm sitting here staring at it. Please feel free to ask questions. What I'm finding interesting is that um, Cheryl uh, did not just take the, shall we say, word of the practitioners, uh, she actually started fighting, which is why they started firing her. Okay. Yeah, and that happened every time that I started fighting. To You were exactly right. Anytime I started fighting, they'd fire me. It's and, true. And uh, the result of your fighting is you found a practitioner who, in fact, looked at you from the proper point of view and you started healing, even even though the healing does it has taken time. Okay, I know yes, that that's what you want to relate to everybody. It is, and the the fact is is that when that doctor took me seriously, I took that information back to believe it or not the the medical regular medical field. You know, my medical doctor who my one had gotten fired actually. He was the one that did get fired, the last one. So the person who took over for my my PCP. She's actually become quite good, and she's the one who gave me LDN. Like, she, mm-hmm. she went ahead and scripted it because that way I could get it, you know, outside of the state for cheaper. And mm-hmm. she was on board, and she was on board with the gluten thing, too, and the Chinese medicine. She said, they've been doing stuff a lot longer than we have. She said, I mean, they know way more than, than modern medicine. And so I have to give her credit. And, 
And then even my eye doctor, he was behind me with what I was doing because he could see the results. And so the regular medical field and my nurse practitioner too, they all have now gotten on board and they're like, you know what, this does sound like Lyme disease and its co-infections. Absolutely, like secondary adrenal insufficiency, Sjogren's type symptoms, you know, fibromyalgia. It's like all the different symptoms and everything that had gone on, because I had a lot of them. I could, it'd be exhaustive for me to tell you that in, in an interview like this, the symptoms I had, but because I had clicking in my wrists and all these weirdo symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, they were able to see my transformation. And, and I'll say I was very doubtful, Jess. So just for people that are out there that are taking LDN or, or going through Chinese or using medical marijuana, it doesn't just happen overnight. And so you Trying may hear stories where it does. And that's great. Those stories are awesome yeah. when it happens overnight. But some of us, like with LDN, if you haven't tried it for four to six months, it's really not long enough. I say one year you. myself. The point, I the say point one that year. you're making that, that is, uh, that's worth repeating, okay? Everything you, you say is worth repeating, actually. Yeah, probably. But uh, <laughs> the, one, the, one, uh, the points that I'm taking that I, that I want to repeat for the audience <clears throat> is that various... Um, Various therapies take certain times to work. Uh, the difficulty is, and this is where you need to do your own research, is to verify how long a certain therapy takes uh, before you decide that it's working or not working. Uh, there's, um, you know, uh, there's an old joke in chiropractic because, um, you know, when I was first in practice, uh, people didn't see chiropractors because the regular doctors didn't approve. Uh, now they don't see chiropractors if they decide not to because once you go there, they'll never let you go. Uh, so the, the old joke is uh, how many chiropractors does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but it takes 25 visits. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, my, my average chiropractic treatment uh, is about five or six visits where some of my colleagues <clears throat> will be in the 80 to 90 visit range for the same exact thing. But uh, there are standards where you can look and say, gee, you know, if I'm not 50% better in three or four weeks, this is not working. Uh, for acupuncture, there, there are standards where, hey, if you're not better within XX time or you're not getting better, you, you know, this is not working because, unfortunately, there's no dipstick that says, ooh, or no plug you can put in somebody no. and, like they do with a car and say, this is what's wrong. We do have a question here. It says, did you have any genetic testing t- done such as 23andMe to help treat the person? And were, you, were any rifing um, or other energy medicine machines part of your protocol? Okay, so I'll try to answer it in two parts. Number one, I had the initial testing blood work for the two main MTHFR defects. I was heterozygous, compound heterozygous for those conditions. And... Uh, and I knew that because my B12 and folate levels were through the ceiling, even though I was vegan. And doctors couldn't explain that to me. I was like, this is not normal. It's, so I knew I wasn't, you know, processing B vitamins properly. And in mm-hmm. terms of energetic medicine, I've had Reiki done on me. I had some limited stuff. And then my doctor, my Chinese physician, uses a machine called a Mora machine on me at every um, appointment. And so... You know, I've, I feel that that's an energetic medicine. I don't know a whole lot about the Mora machine. And mm-hmm. I know the only reason I 
really dove in there and trusted my doctors because I saw the results. And plus, I talked to colleagues of his, former colleagues, and mm-hmm. it was really hard. I, I mean, I did my homework because I was jaded. I mean, I basically felt that I was well within my right in October of 2011 to stop all life means. I just felt this was not mm-hmm. fair anymore. And so it, it really took a lot for my husband to get me into that office. And I point that out because, look at if I had been you know, as stubborn as I am about this, you know, treatment, about that particular thing, about ending my life, I would not be here giving this interview today. And it is a big difference. I couldn't walk up my driveway, which, by the way, is not that pitched. I could not walk my neighborhood. I'd look outside and touch the window, and that's how I contacted the neighborhood. I was totally isolated, and here I am. And so for people out there, that are thinking, you know, there is no treatment. There is a treatment. Even myself, I started the Cowden protocol on the 14th or 14th or 15th. I just started, and um, just a couple days ago, and so it might have been yesterday. And that's for Lyme disease. I added that in, and because I want to see if I can knock out some of those co-infections and you know some of the other symptoms. But you know, I, I remember Linda asked me, you know, Linda, the LDN. Um, fund, their research fund, she asked me to rate my quality of life before, in 2011, you know, when, before a treatment. And I said it was negative 10. And she asked me to rate my quality of life now, and I, I said to her, 10. And a lot of people might ask me why I would say that, because I still have pain, and I still have symptoms. And I will explain why I would rate my quality of life as a 10, is because I get to spend time with my children. I started writing again. I myself sometimes educate through videos. And I've gone back to school and done one course successfully. I've, I bike with my kids. I biked seven miles the other day. So Wonderful. I feel that <clears throat> quality of life is relative. In terms of pain, is my pain all gone? No, it's not. But it is worth hanging in there, and it is a process. And we often focus on outcome. We don't look at the process that's necessary in recovery. And I would remind people that it that's took me... Months to get to 2.5 milligrams on LDN. I started at 0.1 milligram, and then I slowly increased by 0.1 milligram increments. Then I accidentally doubled the dose when I switched pharmacies. And for some reason, I was able to tolerate that dose, and that got me to 1 milligram. And and it took forever, you know. But I remember being out on a bike ride and the wind going through my air, which would have sent me into sweats in 80-degree weather or 60-degree weather in prior years, and going, wow, this is what people like about a bike ride or about a walk, because it had been that many years of sweating that I didn't even know what it was like to have wind go through my hair without breaking out in a sweat. And so, and I had all sorts of of, of tests, too. All those things came back negative, you know. All of them came back negative, including the MRI, by the way. They did that, too. So, I mean, all the stuff came back negative. Negative test does not necessarily mean there's nothing wrong. No, it just means they can't see it. That's all it means. If it's That's why they call it hidden. That's why I call it hidden illness. It's like you do. I think it that's actually, a good word. It actually means it actually means they're not thinking. Okay. Yeah, because something's Honestly, going on. But the uh, the the premise that one has to have as as a um, healthcare provider, if you're going to be successful in treating quote unquote hidden illnesses, is never ever to say that can't happen. You can say that shouldn't happen, and let me see why it's happening in you. Okay, and to never blame it on the patient. 
okay, to find out, to presume that your diagnosis may be incorrect and constantly question yourself and constantly look deeper and deeper and deeper and not to be afraid to say, I don't know. I think most allopathic physicians... Exactly. I just pointed out all I wanted. Okay, most allopathic physicians don't ever learn that, those three words, I don't know. (laughs) Therefore, therefore, it must be you. It must be in your head. And I don't particularly like you because you're taking my time and you're annoying me. Okay? Yeah, it's true. because Because I can't figure out what's wrong. And doesn't that have the flavor of a little boy who's never been told no? Okay, now, I, I'm, I'm trying to make light of it, but the fact is that <clears throat> we're victimized. Quite frankly, we're victimized by the medical, the traditional medical establishment. We are. It's much and worse to, there than it is an alternative. Yeah. I mean, I, have to, I got blamed in alternative well, medicine. Alternative medicine really can hurts. be just as bad. You've got to be well, really careful. Okay, because a lot of alternative medicine guys practice protocols rather than practice alternative medicine or holistic medicine, which is why Sean and I created bio-individualized medicine. So we're trying to reteach doctors and healthcare providers how to think about cases and to include the genetics and include the neuroendoimmunology, acquired mitochondrial dysfunction, cell wall stability. And that's why your 96-year-old doctor got really upset because he knows he knew how to look at a case. So, well, what he was speaking I'm, to, he told me, he said that if he said he wants to destroy your gland, and he said he works for the VA, and he's in here on call, and he said, you're my patient, and this is what bothered me about what he did, though, and he didn't know what to do. He said, I want to vote on this, your husband, you and me, on what we're going to do with your thyroid, and I said, no, you're not going to vote on my thyroid gland. Now, see, the thing is, though, and you have to understand, I was very ill, and that was an inappropriate thing, but my doctor he did know that this was a permanent action to radio to use radio iodine. That right. he knew that, that that would not solve the problem, and he wanted to see if he could be more conservative about it. You know, think it through. And and today, I wish I could tell him. You know, gosh, you know, I if I had not been so far gone, because you know what endocrine disease does to you, right? Like Graves, you mm-hmm. know that you can barely think and you, you're not sleeping. Right. Like it's I'd be up all night, and that's how I was. Your immune system. It's terrible. It's terrible. Well, and when I was very, very sick, I was like that too. But go ahead. Um, no, you're, I, I think because we have about a minute or two left. Okay, I think the um, the takeaway here is that you go with your gut. You don't have to accept these uh, spurious diagnoses. And frankly... When someone tells you that it's in your head, it's time to leave. It is. And remember that the traditional doctors, and I don't care where they are, Johns Hopkins or anywhere else, okay, they're not the only game in town. And I think that you've, you've shown us that you can be a fighter and you can have spirit and you can have the strength of the heart and you can prevail. Yes, I believe that. And that's what I would want people to walk away with is to fight Fight anyone telling you that you gotta engage in a, a brutal assault on the the brain, like uh, electroconvulsive therapy, as somebody to it's walk hard. away from. Okay, when you're doing so. physical treatment, it has nothing to. The mental is involved, but you can do meditation. You can do all sorts of alternative, gentle approaches to slam the body with electricity, and those are seizures they're producing. Is yes, uh, something that's really barbaric, you know. 
And as somebody who had well, seizures as a child. So that's what I would leave I'm, with is a, a message of hope. I'm going to leave everybody with, uh, with, with uh, my thanks for you sharing your story and, uh, and you know, letting everybody know I hope that, I made sense. You know, you made plenty of sense. Good. That you can have a lot of diagnoses and still everybody can miss the mark. And let's yes. face it, people, when someone says that you are, it's on your head, it's time to flip out the back. <laughs> Just remember, all the big doctors and all the big hospitals, they're just people. Okay? They have their own prejudices. Let them push you around. Okay? Have brains, strength, use it, research. Keep researching. Talking to your friends, your support groups. Utilize. The problem is all inside your head, she said to me. So, the answer is easy you, if you take it logically. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways yeah, to leave your lover. Just think of this music. Now I just walk out the door. Give you a prescription you don't want to take. Furthermore, I hope my meaning won't be lost. Going in your mouth. But I'll repeat yeah, I'm not myself. Not to do. I'm telling you to make decisions on your own. Based on good information. If it doesn't feel good in your gut. Or if they fire you because you question them, I'm to slip out the backpack. Back back. Back back. Make, Make a new plan. plan. You don't need to be Watch caught, Roy. Just get yourself free. Hop on the bus. On the bus. You don't need to discuss much. Just hop off the key. And get yourself free. Ooh, slip out the back. Good night, everybody. Make yeah, a new plan. You don't need to be coy, Lord. Thank you for listening to you supporting our Hop on the bus, girl. And please. You don't need to discuss much. Sure. Just drop off the key, please.